Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Myths, whether about a country or system of belief or your family, they can define who we are and how we live. One professor has kicked up heavy debate about the origins and consequences of one of America's most important myths, the Thanksgiving story. David Silverman is author of the new book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. He's a professor of history at George Washington University and specializes in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. Professor Silverman, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. So as you understand it, how do we define the Thanksgiving myth? So in the Thanksgiving myth, friendly Indians, and they're almost never identified by tribe, and there's no accounting for why they're friendly, welcome the pilgrims to their territory and share a feast with them as part of an alliance in which they effectively hand off their territory to the English so the English can launch the United States as a democratic Christian nation dedicated to religious freedom. Effectively, it's a way of having Native people concede to colonialism. It's a bloodless form of colonialism. Well, what do we know about how much of that story is myth and how much of it is historically accurate? Oh, we know quite a bit. The myth part of it is easy to show. Let's start just with the the very premise that these Native people were innately friendly. In fact, what they were doing in reaching out to the English was trying to manage a a very volatile intertribal politics that was taking shape even before the arrival of the Mayflower. Though many, many of your listeners will assume that the contact between the Mayflower passengers and the Wampanoags was a first contact episode, in in fact, there had been a century of violent encounters between Native people and Europeans, so extending from the 1520s all the way to the 1620s. And those violent encounters often included Europeans taking Wampanoags and other coastal New England Indians as slaves, selling them into bondage in Europe or bringing them back to London for training as interpreters and guides. And so, as you might imagine, after many such encounters, the Wampanoags had developed a rather poor opinion of of Europeans. But three years before the Mayflower arrives, the Wampanoags were eviscerated by a European-introduced epidemic disease and their population plummeted. Once that happened, their Narragansett tribal rivals to the West, who weren't affected by this disease, began raiding them. And so despite that century of violent history with Europeans, the Wampanoag leader, Usamequin, thought it was worth a gamble to reach out to these newcomers to Wampanoag territory, the pilgrims, in order to secure a military alliance with them and a trade in European metal goods and weapons. The way that this myth also contrasts with history is we know what happened after the dessert was served at their famous feast. The relationship went sour fairly quickly. Ultimately, 
the two peoples went to war in the terrible King Philip's War of 1675-76. Wampanoags survived that war, though many of them died in the conflict. And in many respects, that war was just the first stage in a centuries-long struggle for Wampanoag people to defend their sovereignty and their cultural self-direction up to this very day. So the way we talk about Thanksgiving today is is pretty divorced from the complexity of the history you just described. How did Thanksgiving Day, as it's celebrated today in the U.S., how did that come to be? So Europeans had celebrated days of Thanksgiving before they started arriving in, in the Americas. And for that matter, Native people had celebrated days of thanks for millennia before the arrival of of Europeans. So, you know, what we call the first Thanksgiving was nothing of the sort. Uh, You know, what's more, that feast in 1621 between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags wasn't even a Thanksgiving by European standards. European Thanksgivings at that time, particularly Puritan Thanksgivings, were fast days. For the next two centuries after that 1621 feast, the English of New England celebrated Thanksgivings episodically, you know, whenever they felt like they needed God's assistance uh, in times of war or in times of drought. And they didn't attach that ritual to a myth of pilgrims and Indians. That was an invention of the late 1800s. And I, I think that will come as a surprise to many of your listeners who might assume that the Thanksgiving holiday and this story of pilgrims and Indians marched hand in hand from 1621. Not at all. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday. It had only been a regional holiday, a North, northeastern holiday up to that, that very point. And after he made this declaration, Anglo-New Englanders began to attach the holiday to this notion that the pilgrims were founding fathers of the country and that the Indians had welcomed them effectively to launch the United States. Um, And New England orators, uh, politicians, authors and the like disseminated this idea until Americans widely took it for granted. It's an origin myth that spoke to white Protestant anxieties about the influx of Catholic immigrants, Asian immigrants, and later Jewish and Eastern Orthodox uh, immigrants. It was their way of reasserting their cultural authority by saying that their forefathers established all of the positive values that one would associate with the United States. So, Professor, you argue that this day should be considered a national day of mourning. Explain that position. Well, I'm not I'm not contending that all of us should hold it as a national day of mourning. But I do think we should reckon with the fact that some native people hold it as such. And, you know, they do so because the rest of the country in attaching this sanitized myth of bloodless colonialism to the holiday seems to be making light of their very real historical traumas. One of the reasons that I I wrote this book is that I heard from so many Native people, particularly Wampanoag people, about what it felt like for them every November as their fellow countrymen 
uh, were making decorations of happy Indians and pilgrims, and teachers in schools were having young children perform these Thanksgiving pageants uh, based on, on the Thanksgiving myth. So what I'm hearing you say is that, and I think this is the case for, for many families, Thanksgiving can be a day to gather, to express thankfulness for things you have, to share a meal with people who perhaps you don't see as often as you'd like, but you don't have to attach that historical that historical story to the day. But if you do, make sure you have the history right. That's exactly right. Let's not lie to ourselves. And let's not lie to our children in school. Because when we do so, not only are we less capable of looking back at our past through a critical lens, we have a difficult time reflecting on our present and our future in a, in a critical matter. Look, I love celebrating Thanksgiving. And for that matter, I know many Wampanoag and other indigenous people who celebrate Thanksgiving too. And one can get together with family and friends and reflect on, on the goodness in our lives without trafficking in, in this false and I think ultimately damaging myth. That's David Silverman. He's a professor of history at George Washington University, where he specializes in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. Professor Silverman's new book is This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. Professor Silverman, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. Well, we can't talk about Thanksgiving without talking about food. Reset's food contributor, Monica Eng, wanted to talk sides. And for some people like me, it is all about the sides. The side dishes are often where people get creative and add food that reflects their cultural background. But it wasn't always that way. And Monica reminds us of what people mean generally when they talk about traditional sides. Well, you're talking mashed potatoes and gravy, stuffing or dressing, if you want to call it that. Two different um, things, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we get into that. Uh, sweet potatoes, cranberry relish. And then there are these ones that are like sneaking into the canon. Well, I mean, corn bread or dinner rolls, depending on where you're from. But this whole green bean with the onions on top mm-hmm. and the cream mushroom soup, that seems like it really wants to get there in the canon. Uh, not sure if that was served back in the 1600s. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they had a lot uh, of cream, cream of mushroom soup, soup hanging around. <laughs> but that's generally what we're talking about when we're talking about that canon. All right. And now we also have sides that have traditions, I mean, pretty much as long as some of the others we've mentioned, but for other groups. Talk about what you learned. Yeah. Uh, years ago, I did a story for the Tribune and I said, you know, what is on your family's table? And just ignoramus Monica was like, what the what? Macaroni and cheese. And pretty much every African-American family I've ever talked to, of course, mac and cheese. What are you talking about, Monica? And not everybody can make the mac and cheese. There and are designated people who can make the mac and cheese. This is what clear. I hear. Oh, yeah. So tell me your family's version of it. So we do macaroni, right? There's mm-hmm. no other noodle. That's the noodle you elbow. use. Yeah, elbow macaroni. I mean, essentially, it's a bechamel with and you, there's some egg in there, too, and you have to bake it. But there's a balance between, um, like it has to be creamy, right? You don't oh. want it to be this stiff, wooden thing. Right. Um, I became the designated macaroni and cheese maker some, oh. some years ago for Thanksgiving. That's but... good to know when we're having potlucks <laughs> around here. A lot of times we were cooking for, for just like a ton of people, so there would just be these... You know the pans you use for turkeys? The, oh, the holy aluminum moly, that? Oh, yeah. Not one. There, were, wow. there would often be more than one of those pans. So okay. it, it was a whole, a whole labor 
Labor of love. So you get the bechamel sauce, but then what do you put on top? And then well, you add the cheese into that okay. sauce. So you make a sort of a base sauce, and then you're adding in your cheddar and you know there's some some Velveeta sometimes. I never use Velveeta. No. Oh, okay, never use Velveeta. I might use like a little Colby something that's a creamier yeah, to give you, you the creaminess. Yeah, but you want um, that bite. You want the sharpness. Yeah, too. you want the sharpness of the cheddar. That's definitely the cheese that's that's forward. Okay, and then should it be kind of crusty and brown on top? For me, you have to have a little bit of brownness on the top because you want that texture. You don't want to burn it. Like, don't burn it. But you do want a little bit of browning of the cheese on top. Okay, well, you're making me hungry. So (laughs) I I heard a lot of, of course, mac and cheese and Mm -hmm. greens. That's Thanksgiving. And some people don't like them to touch. That's what Jill Hopkins oh, told me. <laughs> oh, no, I'm totally with Jill. My father would make a plate and say, well, it's all going down the same way. Right. And everything would sort of be crowded. No, I do vegetables first. Uh-huh. So I do my, my veggies on the plate. And then I go back and get the dressing, the turkey. I get those separate so stuff doesn't touch. All right. <laughs> You're one of those kids. Um, so, yeah, yeah so they, these traditions are, you know, long traditions in many families. In, in many Mexican-American families, tamales are definitely on the table. But then, you know, when I opened it up on Facebook, I heard a lot more traditions. Like what? Give us a couple of examples. Well, let's start with Jocelyn Kay, who says her brother-in-law always does New Mexico-style potatoes with green chili sauce. Uh-huh. And uh, Marianne Albovias, she uh, does a Filipino dish called ginatang calabasa atzitao, which are these long beans with squash. And, you know, we think of the like, beans and squash, the three sisters. That seems to be like a Filipino way to bring that back. Mm. One that caught my eye was the uh, lumpia. Right. More Filipino food, which is like a spring roll. Uh-huh. Super delicious. Definitely. A lot of these are festival foods or things you would have during holidays. Mark Choi said kimchi, uh, which, of course, is a fermented pickled vegetable, mm-hmm. uh, mostly Napa. But I can see how that would be delicious. Um, Helen Satsos says her Greek family always does feta with kalamata olives mm-hmm. uh, to start off with a nice sort of uh, salty bite. Were there any that really caught your eye when you were taking uh, this poll? Well, it was interesting because Asians will often do like a, a rice-based pudding. So Jennifer Tanaka said a mochi pudding, but then um, Joyce Jeng said a sticky rice, uh, sorry, a sticky rice uh, stuffing, which you could see how that would work. But this tomato pudding um, from Toledo, the tally-ho tomato pudding that apparently Toledians always make, which is a brown sugar, tomato sauce, and day-old bread. I've never heard of that. Me either. <laughs> But it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. And, and I, I like how these traditions, you know, they, they develop year after year. And the family's like, of course, we've got to have tofu soup or a lasagna or Kwame Amuaku, who's the head of the Chicago Film Office, Nigerian-American, says jollof rice or ground nut stew always. All right. Now, I understand that there's a bit of a, a pie debate going on. Yeah, well, you know, on Twitter, it caused a lot of issues when someone said, oh, here are the different regional favorite pies for Thanksgiving. And they said that Chicago, that the Midwest, our favorite regional pie was coconut cream. I have to think it was a joke, right? I, I wouldn't. Ne- that doesn't sound right at all. That yeah. doesn't track. I don't get that. Everybody was chiming in saying, this is baloney. We don't eat key lime pie down here in Texas. So I think it was probably a joke, but there is a lot of debate around pie. Some people swear it's got to be pumpkin. Mm -hmm. Other people swear it's got to be sweet potato. Other people, apple. I like to make a cranberry pie myself. How about you? Well, for me, I'm less of a pie baker. My mom would always do the sweet potato pie. I would do um, 
uh, pound cake, which pound is pound cake. cake. We are a big pound cake family. And so around this time of year, it's something I make about once a year. I do a salted um, caramel pecan pound what? cake. Yeah. Okay, I'm signing you up for both of those things for our next potluck. It's. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. It's good. Oh, it's so man. good. It's decadent but good. We're talking to Reset Food contributor Monica Eng about holiday food, specifically foods you might find on your table tomorrow night. Now, I know Monica. I, I'm really curious to hear what your holiday table looks like because I have I have a sneaking suspicion there's quite a bit of variety there is you know so we're we're Chinese Puerto Rican Peruvian Irish Italian Romanian Jewish so there's a lot that goes into it and then I just like bringing stuff from other uh, from other cultures but my my Puerto Rican grandmother would often host and so she would often uh, spice the turkey or season the turkey like it was a pork leg it's like oh I gotta eat turkey but maybe we can make it taste like it's a pork leg so a lot of garlic on the outside and um, some oregano. And then we eat something called pasteles, which, you know, just generally in Spanish means cakes. But um, they're like tamales, but the masa, the base is made out of uh, green plantains. Mm-hmm. And then you wrap them in a uh, banana leaf and steam them. And it's it's a, it's absolutely a festival holiday food. So we would throw some of those in. And um, and if and I really like this idea Joyce Jung has to, to put the Chinese sausage in the stuffing because it adds sort of a sweetness and uh, saltiness right in there. So are you trying anything new this year? This year, um, I'm definitely bringing out my sauerkraut because Julian Haida uh, told me on Facebook that he always brings sauerkraut, um, sort of a kimchi, sort of a krautchi. A crouchy. Well, that's the perfect way to wrap up our talk about Thanksgiving sides with WBEZ's Monica Ng. Thanks to everyone who posted their family's traditional sides on Monica's Facebook page. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. I'm Jen White. Have a safe and happy holiday, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.